There's one person who's been a constant for me throughout my journey into understanding impact investing, and that's Giles Gunasakera. He's the CEO of the Global Impact Initiative, and he's been a valuable ally as I first dove into this rapidly evolving sector. He met me for coffees and he answered my questions and ended up quoting him in a whole bunch of articles that I wrote. He was becoming somewhat of a mentor to me. And today, nothing much has changed. He still answers my calls and he's super patient as I ask the same question for the fifth time. And so it was certainly about time I invited him to be a guest on Good Future. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and this is the podcast where I ask the big questions about sustainable business, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. And this episode is somewhat of a milestone. It's the first recording that I've done in person. No phone calls, no battles with slow internet. Giles was sitting right here in front of me. And I got a whole lot out of this conversation. Giles has built a range of really innovative investment structures that have supported charities for women and girls, They've built hospitals and and they're funding affordable housing. He digs into his upbringing in this conversation and and the influence of his parents, as well as the time he spent at Oxford that completely changed the way he sees finance and led directly to him setting up his business. In this episode, I took the opportunity to do a bare bones breakdown of impact investing. I pushed Giles to avoid the jargon and help an audience beyond those working in finance to understand how we can direct our money to not only make a profit, but to also have a positive social impact. In a similar vein, we dug into the growing pressure from all sides for big companies to clean up their act. There's clearly a shift happening right now, whether it be super funds whose members are demanding they invest with long-term sustainability in mind, or with companies realizing it takes more than big salaries to attract the best millennial talent. We want a sense of purpose too. Now, I spoke a little about the projects Giles is working on at the Global Impact Initiative, but there's certainly far more to discuss there. So I hope Giles will be back on the show before too long. I really hope you enjoy this one. I had a great time speaking with Giles. If you want to follow along with everything we're doing at Good Future, then find us on Instagram. We're at Good Future Podcasts. And you can also keep an eye on my website, johntreadgold.com for all the show notes and the occasional blog post. All right, let's dive in. Here we go. So we're here at Hub Australia today, the new headquarters for the Good Future podcast. They've got a great podcast studio and I've got my first live guest, Giles Gunasakera. How are you today? Yeah, very good. Thanks, John. And yeah, Hub Australia has been great. They've taken me on as part of their impact membership, trying to help social enterprises, businesses that have a social outlook, trying to build them up and support them. So I'll be here for the next year. So uh, yeah, we're moving up. We've got some professional equipment and, and hopefully it's sounding better. Great to be in the heart of Sydney. Excellent. You've had an interesting journey. It's another yeah. big part of this is yeah. you often have these finance folks that yeah. have a light bulb moment somewhere. Yeah. Pretty much yeah. everybody on the podcast has yeah. been through that. Yeah. For you, it was time spent at Oxford University yes. some five years ago. Mm. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, look, the Oxford experience was uh, amazing for me and it was a combination of a number of things. So for me, I was getting increasingly frustrated about the lack of capital 
that exists in, in the not-for-profit area, but the abundance of great ideas, and comparing and contrasting that to the business world, which has a lot of capital, but very few good ideas. And, you know, it was very easy for me to contrast those two worlds because I was working in a professional global funds management firm, but in my spare time, I was sitting on not-for-profit boards and lots of boards ranging from human rights to theatre, dance, cricket, baseball, and then a number of uh, Sri Lankan charities that I've helped to set up and, and run which is my cultural heritage. So I'd been looking for a way really to combine my two worlds, you know, my love and knowledge of the business world, but also the experience that I had in the not-for-profit world, particularly as a volunteer and as a board member. And I guess to trace it right back, if I may, my journey into the not-for-profit world really started at the age of six, doing Meals on Wheels with my mum. And that was, you know, school holidays well spent where I'd go out a couple of times a week with my mum delivering meals. And those meals were delivered to people that looked like they had money, people that looked like they didn't have money. They were served to grumpy people, excited people. You know, the lesson I learned from that really was the way that my mum treated every single person. And that was with respect, with humility, and, you know, she was there to serve. And so that really ingrained in me that there was a need in the world to obviously do community service. And as I did more and more of it, I really enjoyed it. I love giving back, I love helping others, but also as I transitioned and progressed through that not-for-profit world, my business brain kind of kicked in and it was about, you know, how do we get sustainable? How do we do things better? How do we use networks? All that sort of thing. And so to go to your initial question, the Oxford experience was a culmination of a number of factors, but what I gained from Oxford and, and Oxford as an environment. So to give you an example, it was a advanced management and leadership course. There were 35 people, 26 nationalities, 19 different industries, and an age group of 35 to 65. So that was really diversity on steroids for me. It was the ability to learn from people from all over the world, people with amazing backgrounds, really, really beautiful people, and people in sectors that I hadn't had a lot of exposure to as well, with experience in sectors I hadn't had a lot of exposure to. It was a whole holistic experience. You know, we had personal trainers, we did yoga, we learnt Shakespeare, we learnt to use our voice with actors, so we learnt about pitch and tone and pace and all that sort of thing, because it was all about how do you communicate better? How do you be a better person? And so after I returned from Oxford, I thought, how do I bottle that diversity, but more importantly, utilise that diversity into a business. And I went and did the incubator course with the School of Social Entrepreneurs. And the only way that we graduated was that we had to have a business plan. It was a competitive process. You know, we had to pitch our ideas to get onto this program, which was a program of 25 people. And then in order to, to complete the program, we had to have a business plan ready at the end of the nine months. But throughout that process, we did effectively an, an, a mini MBA. So we did strategy, we did governance, we did marketing, we did all the components of an MBA, but with the express purpose of how do we then build that into, in, into a business plan. And my business plan was impact investing, particularly around how do we scale impact investing and how do we make it mainstream and utilising you know, my knowledge in the funds management world, but also with the not-for-profit world. And then at the end of 2015, I decided to take a jump off that corporate cliff and launch the business, which today is, is Global Impact Initiative. So we've survived, uh, you know, the first three years. Uh, and when I say survive, everyone who runs a 
small business and uh, entrepreneurial business will know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it goes from excitement to anxiety and everything in between. But, you know, what I love about what I do is, you know, we're engaging the whole ecosystem. We are working with the UN, we're working with not-for-profits, we're working with the corporate sector, we work with fund managers, with administrators, with the government. So it really is a great opportunity to put all the people and the pieces together and continue to build that ecosystem alongside lots of other people that are doing similar work. But the great thing about, you know, the business is it's bespoke, but it's client-centric. So we build what our clients want us to build, and that is impact investments. Right, it's quite a journey. Yeah, thanks for sharing all that. And it's interesting you talk about the way when you were working in finance, you felt you had your work, but then the philanthropic side was separate. There was that dualism and, and that impact investing is what's brought it together. And I think that's a good way to help people understand it. And there is this term impact investing, no easy task to define it. There's a lot of people coming at it from different angles. What's your take? Will a, a clear definition float to the top eventually? Maybe you can give us your definition. Yeah, so my definition is similar to what's used by the Global Impact Investing Network, GIN, which is measurable financial return and measurable social impact. And more importantly, intentionality around both of those. So everything we do has to have financial return, but there also needs to be measurable social impact. And the benchmark we use for the social impact piece is the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So everything we do has to map to one or several of those uh, UN SDGs. Okay, so you can make money and you can do good at the same time. Absolutely. And I mean, I think people think of it perhaps as ethical investing. Is it more than that? It's much more than that, yeah. One of my uh, not-for-profit directorships uh, that I had in the past was as the National Treasurer of Amnesty International, which was a role I held for, for seven years. And I wrote the investment policy for Amnesty International because at the time we had surplus cash and we, we needed to get a better return on that, on that cash than what we were getting in the bank. So I wrote the investment policy, which was a very ethically based investment policy, as it should have been, because it was Amnesty International, a very large global NGO. But what I found through that process was that it was much more about exclusions than it was about you know, being proactive. Now, obviously, that world has evolved a lot. And, you know, there are obviously ethical managers out there that, you know, will proactively invest into companies that are doing good, but also obviously exclude those that are, are being negative. You know, what I saw through that experience was that you can have both. You can generate financial returns, but also generate that social impact. But there has to be that intentionality around it. And some managers are doing it right now, you know, have, by having an ESG policy. They're taking out, let's call it the nasty sectors, and what's left, you know, they're investing in. Now, what I love about impact investing, as I said, is that intentionality. It's that intentionality right from the start to say, we want to have positive financial returns. We want to have positive social impact and let's build that. Let's work out what that should be and, and how that will work. Yeah, you mentioned uh, amnesty and that's interesting and it might help people get their head around it. You've got the typical philanthropy model, which is basically giving grants, giving money away. How does impact investing fit with that world? We've got a hybrid model um, when it comes to impact investing. So although I said everything we do has to have a financial return, Sometimes that could be a market rate of return and sometimes that could be just below market. So a market rate return meaning the kind of profit that an everyday investor would expect? Yeah, so that could be setting up a fund where the benchmark on the financial side is the MSCI World Index, so, you know, so a very measurable, observable index. But some clients may say, okay, well, that's a good index to shoot for, but what happens if 
we lessen our target, so maybe we go for sub-benchmark returns, so still positive returns, but just maybe slightly under the benchmark, what additional social impact can we create? So to give you an example to hope, hopefully bring that to life, you know, we will launch in the next few months a women and girls impact investing strategy where the underlying investments are investments into listed global equity companies that are progressive towards women. Now, these are companies that have women on the board, women in senior management, you know, a whole bunch of quantitative and qualitative characteristics. But then some of the income that's generated from that fund will go into the not-for-profit sector. So they'll go into organisations like Grameen, like Malala, like UN Women, World Vision, etc., but specifically for social impact and specifically for social impact for girls. So what we wanted to create was an impact investing strategy that looked at both girls and women. But there's several women's ETFs out there, which are excellent, excellent funds, but they are purely focused on women in the workforce. We wanted to look at how do we turn girls into women and how do we empower those girls along the way. And the four areas that we're focused on in that space are education, health, nutrition, and social and economic empowerment. So we feel that through our research that if we are able to help girls in, in one or several of those different areas, we can then help them progress you know, into women and into empowered women. And so that's where we use the not-for-profit sector. So we use experts like Grameen, world-renowned experts in microfinance, you know, Malala in girls' education. So there is a direct link between the not-for-profit sector. And this is what I love about, you know, the work that we're doing, is that there is a solution for everything out there. We just need to think a little bit more creatively. And that solution has only happened because we thought first and foremost about social impact. So although everything we do has to have a financial return and social impact, the starting point was how do we empower girls, how do we empower more women, how do we have a solution that is scalable uh, and that can mainstream and that can pe people put in their super fund and at the same time can then equate to X number of girls being educated, X number of girls being vaccinated, better health outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, and that's investing in big companies that are listed on the stock market that people would recognise? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's 50 to 60 global companies and those global companies are brand name companies that people would recognise. And importantly, those companies are also diversified by sector. So there's about seven different sectors that are represented within the portfolio, but there's also diversified by geography. So it is a truly global equities portfolio. And we would hope that over time people would say, okay, well, I've got a global equities portfolio. You know, let's just call it global equities portfolio manager A. And then we've got the Global Impact Initiative Women and Girls Fund. They're both global equities portfolios, but the Global Impact Initiative Women and Girls Fund has social impact for women and girls, we would hope that people would choose that option over the standalone equities fund. And in our discussions with chief investment officers, CEOs, family officers, foundations, that seems to be the way that the mind is going. It's certainly the way that investors are going. Investors are demanding that, particularly millennial investors. But what we're finding now is at the other end, you know, people that are holding these large amount of capitals are also having similar deliberations at the board table in management teams around, you know, how do we use our investment capital better? Sure. And so taking these 50 or 60 companies, you'll buy a certain 
number of shares, mm-hmm. a small sort of allocation, and put them in a fund. Correct. And I think I get a lot of people asking me, but, but what's a fund? And so I guess it's just a pool, right? A, a small proportion of the shares from each of these companies, you put them in, in a collection, in a group called a fund. Yep. And of course, I guess the impact comes from two directions. On the one hand, you're only choosing companies that have their products, their operations, and I guess their governance. So they have plenty of women on the board and, mm-hmm. and, and women in executive positions. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, do you then use the profits you've earned from that investment, the, the extra capital you've earned, that then goes to these charity partners? Yeah, so the companies that we're investing in, so I should also note that it's professionally managed. So it'll be managed by a global fund manager whose responsibility, you know, they've got teams all over the world, they've got an investment process. It's their responsibility to once the universe has been screened adequately, particularly looking for those factors that we're looking for, that it will then be their responsibility, you know, to build that portfolio. So let's take an example. So Unilever will be a holding in the portfolio. Unilever will pay a dividend to their shareholders. The fund will obviously be one of those shareholders. We'll take that income and then we'll, we'll put that towards social impact programs for girls. So that's how we get that dual, you know, we're investing in companies progressive towards women and, and, and also that portfolio can scale. That portfolio will start at about, you know, anywhere between kind of 10 to $20 million, but it could be billions. And we want it to be billions because it means that we, we're creating more and more social impact. So that income then goes to our partners specifically for girls, health, education, nutrition or social and econ- economic empowerment, but purely for social impact. We don't require Grameen or Malala or World Vision to give us a financial return because we're getting that financial return from the fund manager who's investing that portfolio. And in terms of measuring that financial return, you know, we've got a couple of centuries of of accounting practices that are really core here. Everybody knows how to measure profits, how to measure expenses. It all gets very detailed and we've got public markets, so it's all legally enforced. The other side is measuring social impact. Yes. And and this is the new game. And I think this is really the key to this industry is, is having effective social impact accounting. Yes. How do you see that? It's evolving. But for this particular fund, it will be done in a number of ways. So we will be utilising a um, social impact measurement firm to do this for us. And this social impact measurement firm will be looking at two things. One, they'll be looking at the stocks in the portfolio and they'll be looking at which of those stocks are impacting positively on the sustainable development goals. So they've built an algorithm which basically can take the portfolio and then map that portfolio to the SDGs just purely based on what that company does. The second and even more exciting part of the measurement of the social impact is that we're working with an organisation called FHI 360 and in particular the FHI Foundation. Now FHI 360 is a a global NGO based out of Washington who operate in 35 countries. They have 4,000 staff. They are real experts in health, education and nutrition. So FHI Foundation and our individual partners, i.e. Malala, Grameen, World Vision, etc., will sit down before any money is deployed and work out what the social impact metrics will be. So, for example, if there's a maternal health program that we want to fund in Tanzania, we will work out at the start what are our targets? How many girls do we want vaccinated? What's the cost of that going to be? Not for the girls, but obviously how much capital do we need for that? What's going to be the impact on their families? What's going to be the impact, you know, the long-term impact on health in that country or in that region? 
So we can get really granular and we deliberately want to get granular because we want to be able to say to investors, for the last 12 months or for the last financial year, your fund has returned 12%. Let's just call it 10% so people don't get too excited. Fund has returned 10%, which is kind of around what global equities should do. Oh, but by the way, you know, the fund has also been able to deliver to you or has been able to deliver to girls X number of vaccinations. We've been able to put X number of girls through school. X number of girls have gone through high school. X number of girls have gone through university. And this is all not going to happen from day one. But over time, we will be able to map that social impact. And I always say to my clients, we want to start with social impact metrics that are measurable. Sounds really obvious, but always because we, we're, we're having these really deep, meaningful conversations around the impact that capital can have. Sometimes people go, yep, we just want to do everything. And we say, no, 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 let's dial it back because we can always add in social impact metrics, but we, we don't want to take any away. So let's start off with something that's meaningful and measurable and observable and, and ultimately mapped to the SDGs. But let's start with something so that we can show investors, donors along the way what we're doing and how investment capital is being used for social purpose. Mm, it almost sounds too good to be true. You can make money, but you're also having this this big social or environmental impact. But as you know, certainly my own journey of the last couple of years, the more I understand it, the more I see that there really aren't many barriers and that really is just uh, takes, it's the will of the investors to say, mm. no, this is what I demand. And yes. I think perhaps there's people out there thinking, well, you know, I've got a little bit of an investment, my super fund's in there, but I've never really thought about mm. that social impact. Mm. Is that shift happening? Is this causing all investors to start thinking about their impact? I wouldn't say all investors, but what I would say, John, is this is not new. Impact investing has been happening for 25, 30 years. It just hasn't been called that. There's some extremely successful private equity, venture capital type funds who have essentially been impact investing funds. Either they've been labelled that or they haven't been labelled it, but it's been around. But what's different now is we're talking about mainstreaming and we're talking about scaling. One of the most important documents, papers that I ever read was by the World Economic Forum, I think it was back in 2015, called From the Margins to the Mainstream. And it was a incredibly insightful paper around and and it really was that you know another one of those light bulb moments where they were talking about how do we move impact impact investing from the margins to the mainstream how do we get more fund managers talking about it how do we get pension funds talking about it how do and, and not just talking about it doing it and so what we're now seeing is this beautiful combination and collision of two sets of holders of investment capital one is the millennial investors who they're starting their first job, they're 22 years old, they've got to put 9% of their money into super. And they're saying to their super fund, I want this to be invested properly. And when I say properly, it needs to have an impact lens. Because when I retire in 45 years time, if we don't pay attention to women, to the environment, to water, to sanitisation, I'm not going to have an environment to retire into. So millennial investors, you know, all investors have that power to be putting pressure on super funds to say, you need to do better. You need to give me ethical options. You need to give me socially responsible options. You need to give me impact investing options to invest in. And the beautiful collision comes also from the holders of the investment capital. So 
the CEOs and the CIOs and people sitting on board saying, yes, we can do better. We've heard about this thing called impact. We've already been doing ESG. We've already been doing ethical. Now let's take that focus further forward. And we've got lots of examples of particularly European pension funds that are continuing to year on year increase their exposure to impact investing. We've seen a small little move here in Australia, obviously a lot more to go. And in the US, it's almost non-existent. I mean, ESG is is important and is, is a feature in the pension fund space. But most of the impact investing in the US has been has, has happened through high net worth individuals, family offices and foundations. And it remains to be seen what happens in Australia, whether that is the super funds leading the way or whether it's high net worth investors or foundations. At the moment, it's a bit of a mixture. Uh, there's no real clear winner, but there is definitely a movement. There's definitely a movement around this. And Sometimes I, th- I look back and I think, you know, over the last three years, I'm just reading more and more about impact investing from non-traditional investors. And I'm just thinking, is that just because I'm engaged and engrossed in this space? And it's not because I have lots and lots of contacts and friends in the traditional funds management and finance world. I'm getting them contacting me and saying, geez, this impact investing thing is really taking off. It's gone from one article in trade media, in funds management media, a month to, you know, an article a week and now an article almost on a daily basis. So it's happening, it's moving. You know, obviously we're focused as a business on how do we move from talk to action and and that's everything that we do. How do we move from helping clients articulate what social impact they want to create, taking their investment capital or part of their investment capital running a process to find a fund manager to then manage that portfolio and then obviously putting in place the right social impact measurement firm so that we can say hand on heart this is the social impact that we're going to create and this is how we're going to measure it and this is how how we're going to monitor it and map it to the SDGs over the course of the investment. Great to hear you know, your optimism. There is certainly a lot of growth. I mean, we have whole editions of the FT and The Economist that are dedicated to this, which is a real shift. could describe a bubble, but that's okay. That's uh, part of the evolution. But your funds tend to work with institutional investors. But at another end, if we've got people that you know, they might have a bit of money they want to invest, everybody in Australia has a super fund, offshore, not so much. But at that retail level, which sort of describes the they often say the mum and dad investors, but let's say the uni student, the young professional might have a couple of thousand dollars after the Royal Commission into the banks. They might not be as keen to go for those traditionally pretty safe and reliable investments because they're not really as socially conscious as they'd hope. Are there opportunities for people at that retail, that simple level that only have you know a couple of thousand dollars? Unfortunately, not right at this stage. So although I've been talking about, you know, millennial investors putting pressure on their on their super funds in particular, there's socially responsible investment options. There's a handful of impact investing options. Certainly, there's ethical options for them to invest in. So yes, there are options, but in pure impact, you know, retail product space, uh, there's not a lot of product at the moment. But that is Certainly, I know an aim of our business is to make more of these products accessible to the retail market. And I know it's not just the aim of our business, it's the aim of a lot of impact investors that I talk to and deal with both on the traditional side and the non-traditional side, you know, being being large fund managers, getting into this space. You know, they do want to give access to retail investors. My only suggestion at this point is just keep putting pressure. Everyone owns their super. They have control over it. They can move providers if they're not happy with who they've got. 
and they just need to keep asking the question, where are my impact investing options? And while you correctly stated, John, we are focused on that institutional level, that is only because that's where we know we can get scale and that's where we know the appetite is. Not to say that there's not appetite at the retail level, but it's easier to convert an institutional product into a retail product than the other way around. So that's my kind of funds management hat of, you know, building businesses for funds management houses. That's the traditional path that we've gone down. You get scale through institutional and sophisticated investors, and then you launch a retail product off the back of that. So we're not far away, but yeah, there's not a massive amount of options for retail investors right now. Yeah, advocating for change is really important. And I think people forget that they do have that power. Empowerment's so vital. And something that's come up a lot is this activist investors. And when you do have these big companies that are, are being sold on public markets, so people can buy and sell their shares on the stock market, I think people forget that there is a lot of responsibility there and that, that every shareholder has a vote. And we've yes. seen a lot. We've seen some really um, large cases come up with some of the biggest fund managers that sort of pull all of the votes together and to go to you know some of the big petroleum producers and that sort of thing and demand why aren't you declaring your climate change risk yeah. and these sorts of things yes huge impact and i think you know everybody can do that everybody can can make that push and while you know some people may say oh i'm not going to buy shares in that company you know they might want to divest so i don't want to have anything to do with it a lot of the time engagement can be more productive so they can actually go to the agm put their hand up and say you guys have got a lot of potential, but you're falling back here. How about mm. you do X, Y, Z? We all you know, talk about the power of one and one vote may not. But I think if you, know, if you do make your voice heard and, and you can get a group together, you can organise, then you can make change. And we, mm. we've seen that happening more and more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the last AGM season was one of the most active ever where shareholders were you know, asking questions of management teams and, and boards around climate change, around gender equality, around water, you know, all these are about sustainability as well. It is a common question. It's a growing area of, of angst for a lot of investors. And also the great thing that we're starting to see is, you know, more and more fund managers are becoming more active around it as well. So, you know, fund managers are making investment decisions on behalf of their investors but they are also getting much more engaged in that process and not voting, you know, just with the board or just with the management team. They're utilising their own ESG teams and their own internal filters and also what their staff are saying. And that that's the other, I guess, great way that we see impact investing continue to grow is that these large companies, these big banks, you know, the Macquarie's of the world resources companies that we have here in Australia and, and, and obviously other sectors globally, the staff are demanding that the companies do better. They're going beyond that we need to have red, yellow and green recycling bins in the kitchen. Like that's, that's done. Now it needs to be, okay, so what are we as a company? What are we doing for the environment? Uh, what are we doing to leave the world in a, in, in a better place? And then these more active community engagement programs. Gone are the days for a lot of these big corporates where they just tell their staff, look, there's a philanthropic, not-for-profit donation, you know, matching program that we've got. I mean, a lot of companies do that, and that's, and that's fantastic. But now they're going, okay, well, we've got that. And by the way, if you want to do some hands-on work with Youth Off the Streets or Salvation Army or Amnesty International, you can do that. And we want to give you the avenue, the ability to do that. So getting more engaged around what the organisation is doing and what it stands for, but also 
how we give the money away and how do we do that more effectively. Yeah, and lots of studies coming through showing millennials are really driven by more than money, more than the salary. If you're fortunate enough to be able to, to negotiate and be able to choose between who you want to work for, mm. it's more than just the biggest salary. It really is that drive for purpose and knowing that the company's doing good things. Yes. And companies, yeah, are really being driven again, have to compete on that more than just yes. yeah pushing the funds up. So good stuff. All right, we've talked a lot about this evolution mm-hmm. of this term impact investing. Where do you see it going in the future? Do you sort of have a big moonshot, a hope of where it's going to go? My hope is that in the future, we just call it investing. So the word impact is dropped and everything is impact investing, but we just call it investing. And it's not unrealistic. I am an eternal optimist, but I just think there are too many, not think, I know there are just too many forces at play here. There are investors who need their money to do better and to be more sustainable. And there are holders of investment capital that know that they need to do better as well. So there are too many factors at play and ultimately... There are too many examples of poor uses of capital and we don't have to look too far to see the effects of climate change, taking one example. So, you know, we're living and breathing it now and the really super, super exciting thing is that there is no shortage of money. Australia alone has $2.6 trillion sitting in superannuation. I mean, you could, could you imagine mm. if 10 or 20% of that was used for impact? I mean, that is just it's life-changing. It's climate-changing. It, it is phenomenal. And that's just Australia. And look, Australia is big. You know, we are the fourth largest retirement savings market in the world. The compulsory superannuation system is, is obviously being the biggest driver of that, of that growth. But there is no shortage of money. And if we use the money better we can solve some of these problems. Yeah, I think people forget how Australia really does punch above its weight in terms of Mm. of money managing. Mm. And that, uh, you know, we're globally recognised as some of the best infrastructure investors. Mm. And these are huge products that take massive pools of money. And otherwise, it's quite difficult to pull that all together. Mm. But if you have one organisation that can control it, they Mm. can use that scale. If you have the government behind them, then you can get these big projects over the line. And in the same way, why couldn't we be leaders in in social impact in, in huge renewable energy plants, solar hydro, all of these things mm-hmm. that, um, that mm-hmm. unfortunately we're sort of lagging behind when we do have everything. We've got all the sun, we've got all yes. the space and we've got all the capital. <laughs> we should be leading the way, but we just need people to agitate for change. And that's what this is all about, trying to tell these stories and, and help people understand it. I think impact investing is one of those things that people, the cynical element in their mind might say, oh, it's too good to be true. But I hope I've swayed people to realise that it is an innovative structure, mm. that there's a lot happening and just to look into it, dig a bit deeper and realise that you can, you know, it really can empower individuals to make that change and just to to think more to use their decision Mm. you know you have a decision with which super fund you have a decision with your first couple of thousand dollars you might want to invest and just be really clear about that even even when you spend your money yes who do you buy your shoes from which Mm -hmm. grocery store do you go to look at supply chains these sorts of things Mm -hmm. so yeah really hope people got a better understanding of impact investing understanding what funds are and breaking down some of this financial stuff so they can engage with it a bit more one other thing that would be great, if you have a book recommendation, anything that really sort of got, got you going, opened up your mind about any sector, any, any issue really. I have lots of books, but I'm probably more, more of an audio book person. The one that I've started reading just recently, so I haven't finished it, but certainly it's by someone who I highly respect and has really influenced me, is Ziauddin Yousafzai, who is the father of Malala. The book is called Let Her Fly. And Zia talks about women's empowerment. One of the fascinating stories behind Malala's journey was that 
she was the first ever woman that was put onto the family tree. So in Zia's family, they only ever showed uh, the males that were born. So the females on the family tree didn't exist. And he was insistent that Malala's name go onto that family tree, and, and that happened. And, you know, what I love about what Zia stands for is, one, it's about women's empowerment, but more importantly, it's about men talking about women's empowerment. There's a great quote that I use quite often in presentations and uh, particularly when talking about empowerment. It is the right of the oppressed to speak up, but it's the right of those observing to speak out. And I think that's exactly what we need to do when it comes to gender equality. It's the males that need to be extremely active in speaking out and speaking up about gender equality because that's how we will affect change in addition to obviously females talking about it i just love his journey i love malala's journey there's obviously a lot more to do but the more males that think and act and uh, like like zia the better for sure oh look that's great sentiment to end on i think malala's story really sums up everything we've spoken about and, mm. and sort of the, the social impact element behind all of this. I mean, you know, that story's got so many different layers in terms of a less developed country, in terms of cultural norms, gender norms, mm. all of those sorts of things. So, yeah, definitely have to check that one out. All right, well, we've, we've covered a lot of ground today. All of your funds, I'm going to um, put links to those in the show notes, mm-hmm. the companies we've talked about, so people can check that out. Yep. Yeah, let's leave it at that. And uh, Giles, hopefully we can have you on further down the track when you've got more projects on the go and we, we can get some updates there. Absolutely. We'd love to. Thanks, right. John. Appreciate, Appreciate your time. You.